check. On this episode, we interview a second year student at the Idaho State University College of Pharmacy, along with their associate dean for academic affairs. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have two guests with me on today uh, from um, a, a different states. I'm in Florida. They are in Idaho, and I am extremely excited to, to bring them onto the episode here um, and talk through a couple different perspectives about pharmacy and um, pharmacy school and academia. Uh, so I have on the call with me uh, Dr. Jennifer Adams and Laura Westover. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us. So um, first, we're going to start off with uh, Dr. Adams. We're going to go through some questions, and then we'll um, wrap up the second part of the episode with Laura. So um, Dr. Adams, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Dr. Jenna Adams, and I'm the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Idaho State University. I'm an Idaho girl born and raised. Um, I went to undergrad here. I went to pharmacy school here in Idaho. Um, but most of the pharmacy listeners might know me from my time um, working back in Washington, D.C., have some experience working at the American Pharmacists Association, as well as the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. Um, while I was at AACP, I got my doctorate in education in addition to my PharmD degree um, and really was able to solidify and define my interests in um, academic pharmacy and really am Loving being back in Idaho, which is my home state, being able to support our students and our faculty here at Idaho State University. So what's the journey been like there I mean, getting to where you're at now? I mean, um, kind of walk us through, I guess, you know, maybe for some people that might be interested in academia and kind of what that looks like. Um, you know, give us some insight as to like, you know, when you graduated, kind of what you kind of progressed through and, and kind of the journey through academia. What's that journey been like? Sure. I've definitely had what a lot of people would consider a more non-traditional path to where I am right now. Um, most people, when they go into academia, um, when they come from the PharmD side of things, they do a residency, they do a PGY-1, PGY-2, um, and then they move into within a college. Um, my journey's definitely been a little bit different. Um, when I graduated from pharmacy school, uh, initially, I thought I was going to be a critical care pharmacist, and I had a, a plan and a path um, for doing that. But throughout the time I was in pharmacy school, I was really involved with the American Pharmacists Association with our student chapter at Idaho State University. Um, so I was involved at both the local level, but also the regional and the national level as a student. And I really enjoyed my experience in my um Exposure there. I learned so much about pharmacy in so many other places. And I learned really early on in my academic career that Idaho is pretty progressive in comparison to some of the rest of the country. And so it was fun to be able to share that with other students and other colleagues. Um, and did a, a, an association management rotation um, for an APPE when I was in pharmacy school. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and so I pursued that aspect of my career instead of 
um, doing the residency route and specializing in critical care, which was a big decision. It was a tough, tough decision. Um, but once I made that decision, I didn't really look back. Um, I worked at APHA um, within student development for about four years. Um, I also had a little bit of experience at APHA working with the Board of Trustees as well as our student leaders. And then um, began to figure out that part of what I loved about my job in association management was because I was so connected to colleges of pharmacy, to students, um, to the student chapters. And so I pursued a position working with the organization that supports um, all the pharmacy schools. So like I said, my path to academia was a little bit different. Um, so I spent about 10 years working, supporting colleges of pharmacy, predominantly in student affairs. Um, I ran the FarmCast application, I ran the PCAT, um, definitely a different, um, different experience and different position than what I have now, but one that really opened my eyes to what academic pharmacy is like across the academy and across all the different colleges of pharmacy. So that, along with my doctorate in education, I felt like was a really um, key piece in bringing some value back to Idaho State when I applied for the position to be the associate dean here. And so, like I said, my, my journey's definitely been a little bit different than your average person. But what I often try to remi remind students about careers in academia is that there's a lot of different paths that can get you to the same endpoint. You just have to define your passion and your interest in getting there. So are you the person everyone called with issues for FarmCast? So <laughs> I did not I did not manage customer service from the student side of things. We did have a vendor that did that for us, but um, I ran it from the big picture level um, in supporting the colleges um, because FarmCast as an application service is there to make it easier for students, absolutely, but it's also there to help support colleges and make sure that um, you know, potential applicants know how to find all of the programs that they might be interested in. So um, definitely worked a lot more on the back end with um, the pharmacy schools, but also tried to make sure that the student experience um, and the end user experience as a student was one that was, um, was valuable and not torturous <laughs> for the students. Yeah. So um, it was a really great learning experience and um, I really loved working in that area. Um, I also got to work on the national recruitment campaign, um, Pharmacy is Right for Me, um, while I was at AACP. So definitely had some fun experiences. Lots of learning. That's awesome. So let's dive a little bit into kind of what you're currently doing now with um, um, at Idaho State University. Uh, what, tell us about your day-to-day. -day. Like, what do you love about it? What, what's kind of the most challenging? Well, I think the part that I love about my job here is that I get the opportunity to interact with students on a daily basis and to support students uh, academically as they move throughout the four years that they're um, with Idaho State pursuing their PharmD degree. So I think that's probably the number one thing. Um, I also love that I get to work, you know, at the sort of big picture level in the PharmD program, but I also still teach. Um, I still do research. Most of my research is in the area of um, professionalism. I still do some admissions research. Um, 
And so mostly what we will call the scholarship of teaching and learning or educational research. So something that's a little different. Most people, I think, when they think about research, they think, um, you know, at a bench in a lab doing that type of research. So um, so I still do those. Um, so I love, you know, the research, the teaching, and then the service opportunities and a role like an associate dean role are um pretty, pretty massive. There's so many opportunities. In fact, I find I have to say no sometimes to some professional opportunities, but I have um, been able to get involved at both the state level as well as the national level um, with different um, professional organizations. So I still have leadership roles in um, AACP and in APHA as a faculty member. So really, I feel like it's the best of all the worlds because I get to do all the things that I think are fun and no two days are ever the same. Um, but the challenging part about it is sometimes that, you know, you try everything you can think of to help students succeed academically. And sometimes they still just don't get there. And so I would say that's probably the most challenging part of my job is that um, I'm, I'm the bad guy. I'm the person who works with our progressions committee. So when students are having having trouble academically, I have to have those difficult, challenging conversations. And that's probably the hardest part of my job. That's a, that's interesting, actually, because I know, you know, everyone that's been through pharmacy school realizes that there's um, there's just people that um, are struggling for whatever reason um, or sometimes even, you know, either fail or may not make it through and end up actually um, potentially dropping out of school um, to to kind of dig in a little bit to that. Is there anything that you can maybe comment on that seems to be a common kind of um, some commonality amongst like people that struggle or if there's like buckets of situations that are most common with people that struggle and maybe how like what maybe advice people can have to like not fall into some of those things when they come into school? Well, um, I would probably put them in this sort of two buckets. Um, One bucket where um, there are personal life issues, whether it's mental health or family or, you know, something that's going on in your personal life that's impacting your ability to succeed academically would be one bucket where I'd put things in. And the other bucket where I would put things in when students don't do as well is generally people who work too much when they're in pharmacy school. They, mm. they do a little bit too much working outside of school and aren't able to really devote the time that they need to their education and, and their learning. Um, so those are probably the two most common buckets that I've seen there. Um, and so my advice would be, uh, don't think that you can handle everything all the time, everywhere, you know, try to be realistic about how much you can reasonably work and still be successful academically. And then the other piece of advice would just be to reach out for help. Um, if things aren't going well, I know our college has a ton of resources for students, whether it's academic coaching, we've got tutoring programs, um, we also have free counseling on campus. So if whatever it is that's impeding your ability to succeed, I'm certain we have a resource that can help. Um, and so reaching out and asking about those resources earlier rather than later is probably the number one piece of advice I could give. Awesome. That's an interesting point about the working too much. I mean, I, 
I, I think, you know, you, you probably can guess that, but it's interesting to hear that that's kind of like one of the main buckets that you see as, as a source of uh, a potential issue. So thanks for that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to follow up on was the research that you had mentioned that you're doing that's um, kind of like, you know, not what people would normally think about when they think about research. Can you give us maybe a little bit more details as to maybe like the abstract version of either what you're currently working on or research that you've um, recently completed in academia? Sure. So uh, an article that was somewhat recently published um, was an article that I worked have worked on for um, quite a long period of time. We actually took applicant data out of FarmCast and we ran some analysis um, on applicant data, looking at um, applicant characteristics and using that data and looking at the different characteristics of different applicants, we were able to um, use that information and to recommend a socioeconomic indicator that can be used moving forward in the FarmCast application. That's very evidence-based and data-driven. Oh, okay. um, so the hard part is, is when you're looking at an applicant, you want to be able to consider more than just their GPA or their PCAT score. You want to be able to know a little bit more about who they are as a person. Um, what have they overcome in their life? Um, what's their, we, in the admissions world, we often call it distance traveled. So what distance has that student traveled? And when you think about if you come from a lower socioeconomic background, you may have traveled a further distance than somebody who maybe had a little bit more economic advantage. You may have had some educational challenges that went along with that. You may have been a little bit disadvantaged educationally, depending on where you grew up and what schools and access you had available to you. But it's really hard to determine in an application what someone's socioeconomic status was. Um, I don't know about you, but I have no idea how much money my mom and dad made when I was growing up right? Um, mm. And most people don't. And so often we ask different questions that try to get at that. You know, did you go to a school that had more than 25% of the students that were eligible for free or reduced lunch? Um, you know, so there's these different types of questions that we ask that make it get at it a little bit. But this um, research was able to provide an index that shows students on a scale um, of what their socioeconomic status was using their parents' education and occupation. So it's still a surrogate marker, but it's one that's been used in um, medicine and dentistry uh, for quite some time. And so we were able to pull together the applicant characteristics and the information to be able to devise a scale for uh, pharmacy. And so that's one of the things that actually one of the pieces of research that I'm most proud of that I've worked on um, because it really provides more information for schools to make an informed decision about their applicants. Um, and it's helpful for them to know, you know, when somebody's had to work a little bit harder um, because it definitely shows perseverance, determination, grit, all of those things that we think about um, as positive characteristics in an applicant. I am so fascinated by this. And, and the reason is, is because I think I fall into the category of, um, I didn't have a great like educational background. Um, you know, we weren't, um, you know, well off for the most part, um, you know, living, uh, for me growing up. And I feel like that did have, make me have a chip on my shoulder. And I think 
And I think that distance travel definitely goes a lot farther when you have a lot of those disadvantages. So that's super interesting to hear that you're kind of doing kind of research behind that and getting some real data and showing that, you know, it's not just a, a chip on the shoulder and a mindset. It's almost like there's data behind this sort of, um, um, you know, some of these disadvantages that actually turned into advantages. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been some really, um, really challenging research, but some really, really interesting research and hopefully something that's going to make a large impact moving forward um, across the colleges of pharmacy. So um, something that's pretty exciting. And, you know, of course, in a few years, we'll probably have to do the analysis again because every year the applicant pool changes and the characteristics of our applicant pool change. But um but it's something that we can continually keep monitoring so that we're providing good information for all of our colleges as they're determining who to admit to colleges of pharmacy. Now, I know you didn't expect to kind of really dive into this, but now I'm really curious and I just wanted to see if, if there's any insight beyond. So there's one thing to see, you know, the application process and deter- like let the schools make a decision. But are you going as far as to following some of these students to see if those um socioeconomic factors played a role in their actual performance, like at the end of, you know, when they graduated, whether that be through graduation rates or tests, um, you know, NAPLEX score rates, like, are, are you, is there any follow-up to that? So I think that's a, a really good question. Um, it's a little different though. It's tough to do from a national perspective because there's lots of different types of pharmacy schools. So we've got three or accelerated programs. We've got four year programs. We've got public, we've got private. Um, there's so many different curricular designs in how different pharmacy schools implement their curriculum. And so there's going to be a ton of confounding factors once someone's admitted to pharmacy school and looking at whether or not they're successfully um, successful in terms of graduation. So this is something that the accrediting body encourages colleges to actually analyze their own applicant pool data and look at their own admissions processes and research them and study them and make sure that the applicant characteristics that they're valuing in their admissions process are those that they that actually lead students to success within their specific curriculum. So there's definitely work like that happening. Some that gets published, probably more that doesn't um, as schools look at it from a quality improvement perspective. Um, but there's definitely some that gets published out there. And so it'll be really interesting to see you know, for schools that are really using that piece of information if they're um, publishing that sort of thing. But my my rule of thumb, and I often say this when I start talking about admissions and evidence-based admissions, any admissions applicant characteristics should really be focused more on the first couple of years of performance in a curriculum rather than saying that this applicant characteristic can predict high performance on the NAPLEX or this applicant characteristic at admission can predict who's going to get a residency program. There's so many things that happen from the time you're admitted into pharmacy school until you take the NAPLEX or until you are applying for a residency program that can be confounding factors that can be really difficult to control for um, in a statistical analysis. Well, this is really interesting. I, d- I did not foresee us going down this road, and this and it's and it's a delight for me. Um, I still think I have a chip on my shoulder because of of how I grew up with all with a lot of those disadvantages. So it's it's re- it's really cool to hear that you know there's um, 
there's studies being done around this. So th- thank you for that. All right. Let's let's jump Absolutely. into. Absolutely. Well, the, yeah, the cool ahead. part before you go on, the cool part is that when you're in academia, if these are the things that you're interested in, these are the things that you can focus your efforts and your energy in. Um, and so bringing it back to an academic role, I think it's pretty awesome that I can participate and work on research and different service-related activities and teaching that fits for me because I'm not your average, you know, clinical faculty member. I teach pharmacy law. I do this other type of research. I research professionalism and other things, you know, so something really different than what I think most people expect. And so I think it's good for students to hear um, and to learn about. um, And I'm certain that Laura has a P2 student in our program maybe didn't know some of these things even about me, um, that there's lots of really interesting things that our faculty are doing um, that impact the profession of pharmacy even above and beyond how we take care of patients. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. All right, so um, let's jump into the expanding roles um, of the pharmacist and pharmacy practice. Um, so one of the reasons that Laura actually had connected with me um, to get this set up was because to talk through some of the expanding roles in, in Idaho. So um, Dr. Adams, can you touch on a little bit about what you've seen around these expanding roles in the state? Um, and then we can jump into kind of what the school is preparing students for to adapt. Sure. So Idaho historically has had pretty broad Um, pretty progressive pharmacy practice laws. Um, We started out with collaborative practice in 1997, allowing pharmacists to have collaborative practice agreements with um, physicians and with nurse practitioners because Idaho is one of the states that has independently practicing nurse practitioners. Um, And those have continued to broaden over the years. Um, But a number Mm, I'm trying to think of exactly what, uh, 2017, um, we began to expand some of our independent prescribing authority. So our first independent prescribing authority came in the state in 2011, um, and it was individual things. So um, immunizations, fluoride, smoking cessation, TB skin testing, um, epi auto injectors. So it was very specific things that were added to our um, pharmacy laws, allowing pharmacists to prescribe independently for those specific things. And in um, 2018, one of our legislators said, you know, is there not a more streamlined way that we could do this? Could we not set some parameters and say pharmacists can prescribe independently within these parameters? And then we let the Board of Pharmacy determine the list of things that would be on the list. (laughs) You know, um, so it was pretty exciting to to see that happen and to see that pass. And so the parameters for Idaho independent prescribing are um, things that don't require a new diagnosis. So things that have previously been diagnosed, things that are minor and self-limiting. Um, so examples of things that are minor and self-limiting are cold sores, um, uh, uncomplicated urinary tract infections, things like that, that a pharmacist could very easily manage and treat without having to send the patient um, to urgent care or back to their primary care provider. Um, so no new diagnosis, things that are minor and self-limiting, things that can be diagnosed with a CLIA wave test. So for example, rapid flu, rapid strep are examples there. Um, pharmacists in Idaho could in 
order and interpret labs. That's part of our Pharmacy Practice Act, but this just really defines that you could prescribe independently based on the results of those CLIA wave tests. Um, <clears throat> and then anything that a pharmacist determines is an emergency situation. Um, so the Board of Pharmacy initially develops uh, a list of things that pharmacists could prescribe based on those four parameters. And then each time our Board of Pharmacy brought new things to be put on the list, there was again that same level of um, conversation with our state legislature. Idaho is one of the handful of states that does require legislative oversight of our agency regulations. So when our Board of Pharmacy says they're going to pass a regulation, they do have to have it reviewed by our House and our Senate Health and Welfare Committees for approval um, before they can go into effect. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a key difference there. And so this same legislator that came forward initially said, well, that didn't exactly work the way I wanted it to, because now I'll have the same conversations every time the Board of Pharmacy is trying to add things to the list. So do we really need to have a list or can we just say that pharmacists can prescribe based on these four um, categories? And so that's where we are now in our state. So not only can pharmacists prescribe based on a collaborative practice agreement and with authority delegated to them by another healthcare provider, but they can also prescribe independently based on those four areas. That's amazing. I mean, that's such a like a, a way of somehow you guys are just leading the way on that. I feel like because I mean, it makes sense to most yeah. even even people that are not in healthcare. It makes sense to like, what do you mean you can't like just prescribe that? You know, like you're a pharmacist, you're the expert in this actual medication. Um, you know, so it's just it makes sense that a lot of the legislation is starting to catch up. Yeah, I think the other, there were two other pretty significant things that happened around the same time. And um, first is that um, they expanded pharmacy technician roles as well. And so um, where we are now is that a pharmacist in Idaho can delegate any task to a pharmacy technician as long as it's appropriate for their education and training. Um, and thinking about it from the perspective of we it doesn't require the pharmacist's judgment as a best practice, but really the law just says, unless it's expressly prohibited, and as long as it's within somebody's education and training, it can be delegated by a pharmacist to any of their support staff. So that could be an intern, it could be a pharmacy technician. So that's one piece is you've got to have support staff that can help support a pharmacist if they're going to take on these type of advanced roles. Um, so that was step one. And step two was Idaho transitioned to standard of care regulation. Um, and we're now the only state that regulates our pharmacists based on a standard of care, which is really interesting um, because physicians and nurses and other healthcare practitioners have been regulated based on a standard of care for a really long time. And so um, it's interesting, I think, for some of the other healthcare professionals to think about that pharmacists haven't been. And so the technical term in the regulatory world is called bright line regulation, which is what's used by most state boards of pharmacy, where they spell out in a part in the pun, very prescriptive way, 
um, exactly how large the counter has to be in the pharmacy or the type of hinges that you have to have on the door in the pharmacy or how hot the water has to get and the exact things that you need to um, do in a prospective drug utilization review or um, exactly how you need to take care of a patient in nearly every situation imaginable. And some states have really big law books because of that. Um, and Idaho, in, in transitioning and thinking about advanced scope for the pharmacist and for the technicians, transitioned to this standard of care regulation. And so I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, what does standard of care mean? Um, in standard of care being different than Brightline regulation is that if you've made decisions that are reasonable and prudent and within the appropriate standard of care, made the same sort of decision that a group of your colleagues with similar education, training, experience, working in a similar practice setting, if they would make that same decision, then you have practiced within the standard of care. And if they come together and they say, you know what, that we wouldn't make that decision, that's outside the standard of care, then that's where the Board of Pharmacy can come in. And the burden really is on our Board of Pharmacy to bring pharmacists forward who they think might not be acting within the standard of care. And they'd have to use those, um, those folks who also practice in those same areas, having similar experience, education, and training. So a little bit different in the regulatory model, as well as the authority um, in terms of the scope of practice. That's great. That definitely sounds like um, it's going to allow for a lot of, you know, professional judgment without like the fear of, you know, the board kind of coming, knocking um, all their ideas and plans down. So that's actually really, um, really interesting to hear. Now, what about kind of what the school, as both of these things start, start to emerge and, and adapt and change, what, how is the school kind of preparing students um, for those for those changes? Well, the first thing that we did was we took a look at our curricular review process. So every college of pharmacy is required to have a curricular review process, a way that you look at your curriculum and make sure that it is up to date and that it's contemporary. And historically, our curricular review process, um, we, similar to many other pharmacy schools, we reviewed a year of the curriculum at a time. So one year we would look at the first year in the curriculum, the next year we'd look at the second year, third year, fourth year, and we would come up with improvements and plans for changes for that whole year. But that that year of the curriculum wouldn't get revisited again for at least another three years, right? So it's happening every four years that we're looking at a year of the curriculum. And what we found with all of these changes as they were happening was we needed to be able to be a little bit more flexible. Um, we needed to be able to modify our curriculum a little bit more quickly than once every four years. And so we've worked over the last three years in developing a annual curricular review process where we look at every single course within our curriculum in a single academic year, which I'm certain if there are pharmacy schools listening, probably think we're a little bit crazy, but we've We've developed a really streamlined process and a really streamlined way of looking at things so that we can make these changes as they're needed and as our practice has changed and advanced and evolved. Um, and so it's been a really great thing because if you think about it, historically, most colleges of pharmacy are training their students to be 
collaborative practitioners. And it's not that we're not training our students to be collaborative, um, but we also have to teach them how to be independent thinkers and thinking about that when I go out into practice, there will be components of my practice where I will be practicing independently. And even if it's only supervision that's predominantly on paper, I'm not going to be supervised for this set of activities. Um, there may still be, you know, folks that work in, in collaborative practice. There are definitely things outside of the independent prescribing that we have pharmacists that are, you know, um, working, doing things that are really advanced that a collaborative practice agreement would still be required. Um, but for this subset of activities, I'm going to be an independent practitioner. There's not going to be that additional level of supervision. So the mindset there is different. And so that's been a big part of what we've been focused on is making sure that we're training our students so that when they leave us, they have more of that independent mindset. Awesome. Well, Dr. Adams, thank you so much for all of your insight today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll go ahead and transition over to bringing in uh, Laura um, Westover into the conversation. And then uh, Dr. Adams, don't go too far because we have a bonus question at the end of the conversation that you'll be surprised to hear. Um, so and then I'll have both of you kind of answer that question at the end. So, um, Laura, welcome to uh, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, well, my name is Laura Westover. I am a second year pharmacy student at Idaho State University. Um, basically, um, my family is from Brazil. We moved to the United States when I was just a baby. And so it was kind of interesting. We were talking earlier about the distance travel during like the pharmacy application. And really my background has really helped me decide on pharmacy as, as a career for myself. Um, my dad had a, um, eighth grade education in, well, he was in Brazil and he, when he moved to the States, he decided he wanted to go back to school and he went to nursing school and eventually back to nurse practitioner school. And that really motivated me to like really want to do something in the medical field. And that's always been a motivation to me. And I've learned a lot from him and my parents and, you know, the struggles that they went through and just learning from their experiences. Like I wanted to be better and have a better life for my future kids. Um, and so I decided that I wanted to go into to pharmacy school. Um, I did my undergrad or my prerequisites at, a, at Chandler Gilbert University, or sorry, Chandler Gilbert Community College in Arizona. Um, I worked as a technician for about three years um, there in Arizona for a corporate pharmacy. Um, I learned a lot while I was there. I realized that pharm the pharmacy world is super hard and there's a lot of um, things that go into it. And at first I wasn't sure if I actually wanted to be a pharmacist. Um, but after some time, like I really started to enjoy the career and enjoy the profession. And I applied to Idaho State and um, it's been a great experience so far. We've lived here in Pocatello for about a year and a half now. And um, it's been it's been an amazing experience. And I'm really excited to to share my passion for pharmacy and and share what I know about it. So so we actually have um, some things in common, Laura. So my my mm -hmm. parents actually came from Trinidad and Tobago um, to the U.S. Oh, okay. um, I, I was I was born here. So that was before I was born. But um, but they did immigrate here. And but the crazy thing is, is that um, my mom didn't become so I was raised by my mom. So um, for the most part, but she 
had a um she was like a nursing assistant like for most of like my early childhood and then I was like a teenager Mm -hmm. um when she became a nurse um so very similar kind of path where like she went to school like really just to be able to afford to be able to take care of me um and then and then that was kind of a driver of what kind of drove me to like looking at healthcare and stuff like that so a lot of a lot of similarities there so you too probably have a chip on your shoulder I like it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I Um, do (laughs) so uh, tell me about kind of how the year started off for you like what's p2 like um you know because a lot of times students Mm -hmm. I I hear about people that have never even been um uh, I hear about people that haven't even started pharmacy school yet that listen to this so it might be interesting to hear kind of some of the perspectives from like maybe how first year went and maybe how um p2 has been going for you Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually found your channel before pharmacy school because I was interested in knowing if like pharmacy was even worth it. And so thank you for your channel because it's helped me throughout my pharmacy journey. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, um, so so Idaho State has four years, um, P1, P2, P3, P4. Um, and we have, what's really cool about our campus is that we have, there's three campuses. So there's one in Pocatello, Idaho, Meridian, Idaho, which is close to Boise. And then we have a campus in Anchorage, Alaska. And so we do a lot of distant learning. Um, so we have professors in Alaska, we have professors in, in Meridian and here in Pocatello. Um, and so we're not always in the same room with the other students, but it's been interesting to interact with them and, and also like have a small class in each, in each individual campus, but also be a part of a bigger class, you know, that we're kind of in it together, but we're not physically together. Um, so P1 year was um, like a fire hose of information. Um, it was kind of interesting because we they threw a lot of things at us. And um, it was mostly like the basics, like science, physiology, um, you know, drug therapy, not so much drug therapy, but um, like just the physiology of the body. And um we didn't get so much into like the actual medications till second semester of P1 year. And that's when like we started getting more, more deeper into that. And that's when it became actually fun. Um, (laughs) And this, (laughs) you know, we were actually learning about medication and that was the fun part for me. Um, You know, working as a technician before I like, I hated not being able to answer questions about medications. Like, yeah, I know this is for your cholesterol, but I can't tell anything about it. And so now um, in P2 year, we're actually getting into that, to the pharmacotherapy of, of medication. Um, so one thing that I really liked about Idaho State was that the curriculum is separated into modules. Um, so our, this semester, we've, we've had so far the, the, pulmon, the pulmonary and the renal module. So we focus everything um, with the medications from inhalers um, to corticosteroids, um, things like that for asthma and COPD. And then also we, we moved into the kidneys and um, kidney failure and things like that. And so that's been really interesting to see how body systems actually come together. Um, and so now we just finished that uh, module and we're moving into cardiovascular, which is I think like three modules long. So we'll finish the end of the semester with this and start it again next semester. But it's been really nice to have it kind of separate and just mm-hmm. focus on one one section of the body and really focus on that and dive really deep into that and then you know learn all you can on that and then move forward and it's been really nice and really helpful to just organize my mind that way um, so 
I've really been liking this 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 year um, just for that reason. So it's been really nice. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like mm-hmm. a lot of schools have moved to like the module sort of learning. Whereas when I was there, I think it, it was not like that. But I, I think that there's a lot of benefits to to these modules. So it's pretty cool. So mm-hmm. tell us what's like what's the most unexpected thing that you've um, about pharmacy school that you might be able to shed some light on? Um, well, for me, I've always been like, I don't know how to say it, but school school has always been difficult for me. Um, I'm never I was never a 4.0 student. Um, I've always had to like work really hard and like study extra hours to like get the good grades that I needed. Um, and so my fear was when I got to pharmacy school that the, the professors would be like, "Hey, you're on your own. You can, you know, figure it out." Um, kind of like how it, it is in the movies. You know, you see those first year law students or first year medical students on the first day of class, like, "Open your books. We're gonna read five chapters today." You know, so I was kind of nervous that that's how it was gonna be, and then I wasn't. Um, capable of learning quickly or um, just being able to grasp all the information as fast as everyone else could. Um, But the very first day, orientation, our professors and faculty, they said, you deserve to be here. You, You are capable. We wouldn't have accepted you unless we knew you could do it. And so like that really motivated me and encouraged me to, to, to have confidence in myself to to trust in my professors um, that they know what they're doing. Um, Idaho State is celebrating 100 years of pharmacy school, and so there's a there's a big reputation behind our professors and our students. And so I I really I really appreciated them saying that to me because I I felt scared, you know, you know, first day jitters and um, just knowing that my professors have my back that I can ask them questions that there's the tutoring opportunities. Um, there's so many things that the, the teachers are there for, to help us with. And so that was, that was nice for me to know that it, I didn't know it was going to be like that. I yeah. thought it was going to be just on your own, you know, and, and they're very hands-on and they're very involved in our, in our curriculum and in our studies. So I really, really like that. So as I'm hearing more about how, like, you know, you tell about your story and kind of your experiences, I'm, I'm really starting to hear a lot of similarities between myself. And um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into the confidence part of things and, and kind of kind of approaching difficult situations, um, uh, because it sounds like I, for me, I had to do the same thing. I felt like I, I had a 2.7 GPA at high school. Like I, I did not have a great education, um, like leading up to like mm-hmm. to a collegiate career. So it actually made me have to be a very similar way where I had to study a lot harder and longer and find different ways to study um, to be able to even feel like I'm just like up to par with kind of all the other students um, on an average. How so but for me, the way I kind of overcame some of these things and what helped me push through was just realizing kind of that, well, if someone else can do it, like that means I can do it, too. Like I just got to figure it out. Right. And that for me, just Mm -hmm. realizing that other people did it was what helped me with like confidence and knowing that I could do it. And I wanted to maybe get maybe your perspective on what helps you kind of approach like things that like seem daunting at first, but um, how do you kind of overcome that and have that confidence to like go about doing whatever it is that you're doing? Yeah. um, I think for me, my dad's always told me, you know, how bad do you want it? Like, is this something that you kind of want or, or you just don't want it at all? And so like, 
how bad do I want to be a pharmacist? And I just keep that in my head. Like, how do I want to take care of my future patients? How do I want to take care of my future family? Um, and I've just kept that in my mind. Like, how bad do I want this? Like, I want to pass. I want to have good grades. I want to be a good clinical pharmacist. And um, it's just always, you know, helped me to to push. And like long study nights, like I hate it and it's miserable, but, you know, it's something I have to get done. It's this part of my life that will pass. And I just try to embrace that and try to soak it all in because um, I know I will miss it one day. This this is just like a small part of my life. Um, but I would also say just like having faith. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a religious person and um, just believing that, you know, God is on my side and that, you know, I have specific talents and capabilities um, as a person um, and just trusting in that um, has given me a lot of encouragement and just being able to stay focused and, you know, have my, have my sights to the, to the end goal. I absolutely love that perspective. And I really do hope, I, I think that'll resonate and help a lot of people. Um, so I really thank you for sharing that because I think, yeah, you know, just the fact of like, it will pass. Um, how bad do you want it? I mean, these are things that really like forces people to dig deep and, and overcome a lot. So um, thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that, that perspective. And yeah. um, I, I also wanted to ask about kind of, and you know, you just seem like your confidence, you're positive. So um, I kind of have an, an inkling of how you're probably going to answer this, but I do want to know, as I'm sure most people here in the industry, they hear all the news about doom and gloom and they hear about things closing and, and how, the market's flooded and, and all these types of things. So how does someone like you kind of handle hearing some of those news and um, keep like a bright future ahead? Yeah. Um, I, I hear that quite a bit. And, you know, before pharmacy school, like, it was kind of scary, like submitting my application, like, is this career path going to lead me to financial stability? You know, um, am I going to be able to find a job? Um, but being in Idaho, i my eyes have been opened. Um, like Dr. Adams was talking about, there are so many things that pharmacists can do now and um, the responsibilities are growing and, and that means that technician roles are growing too. Um, I, I remember working in, in Arizona, um, we don't have the same kind of laws and you know, working for a corporate, there's a lot of extra rules that we have to follow. But you know, just seeing like patients coming in, newly pre- newly diagnosed diabetic, you know, they, they need their, their insulin, but there's no syringes or there's no pen needles and we can't, they can't afford it to pay out of pocket, but we can't let them have it yet because we don't have a prescription for it. You know, their insurance won't cover it without a prescription. And so seeing that now, like in Idaho, like, Hey, you need your needles or you need your um, inhaler that you've been on for so long. Let me prescribe that for you. I'll let your doctor know what we've been doing um, and we can get you taken care of. And that's just so awesome to me, just knowing that my education is, is enough for, you know, prescribing things like that and for, um, and for helping patients out. Cause it's, it's hard to tell a patient to, to go home and wait for, for their doctor. And, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of days and if it's, if it's Saturday night, you know, they're not going to answer till Monday. Um, and so just realizing that the responsibilities is, are growing in Idaho. And I believe that eventually these responsibilities will be growing in other states too. My hope is, um, 
you know, that more pharmacists can have this, this opportunity and, you know, it makes me want to practice here, you know, and, um, once things start getting better for the rest of the country, you know, more people can, can apply to these schools and, and bring this to, to their home state. Now, I, th- I think, uh, it sounds like Idaho state's an awesome place to, to kind of go to school. I mean, just hearing kind of what Dr. Adams, the perspective she has, I mean, it sounds like you guys are in really good hands there, but what other insight can you provide with, kind of how you think school is kind of preparing you for like the challenges to come and kind of the changing landscape of healthcare. Um, give, give us some insight there. Yeah. Um, so as a P2, like we have, we haven't gotten too deep into that yet, but um, I believe in P3 years when we start learning how to do like rapid point of testing and um, like writing prescriptions and things. Um, but so far what I've noticed is, you know, we, we were writing soap notes in, in our case studies and trying like we have a patient case and we try to analyze the patient and ask certain questions like what's going on like how do you feel what makes how do you, what makes it feel better you know asking questions like that to try to get an overview of how the how to diagnose or how to recommend a medication to a patient and um my mind i feel like it's pretty lin- linear at times where i just think like a leads to b b leads to c and you know continuing um, but what I'm learning now is that that's not always the case. I need to have a, a wider mindset and ha- and see the patient as a full picture and not just, you know, very linear. Um, and so that's been kind of difficult, just trying to like open my mind to see things that way. But with the case studies and like the practicing of that, like I can see myself, you know, um, creating like a web of possible diagnoses or possible conditions that could be happening to a patient. And I just hope that that continues. And like, as my education grows, that I can do that faster and and quicker. Um, And um, it's just been really cool to see like the way I think change. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, so much insight. I think we've gotten both from a, um, from a faculty perspective and from a student perspective. So um, I I really do appreciate all of this. So uh, I do want to ask one last bonus question and it'll be the same question for, um, um, for both Dr. Adams and Laura, what, um, and Dr. Adams, I'll, I'll have you answer first. So the question is, if you had the opportunity to take one person out to dinner, um, who would that person be and why? But there's a couple rules and the, the rules are for your decision is that person has to be alive and famous. So they, I mean, they don't have to be a celebrity, but more so they have to be someone that has a Wikipedia page. Um, and it cannot be any of the current or past presidents. Who would that person be and why? So I think for me, can I have more than one? Can I have two? Sure. I'll I'll allow. Um, (laughs) Okay. So my first one would be um, Jacinda Ardern, who is the current prime minister of New Zealand. Um, Mm. She's a boss. Right? Yeah. (laughs) So she... She's 40 years old. She's younger than I am. She had a baby while being the prime minister. She's done a great job there um, of keeping coronavirus under control in their country. Um, So she would probably be my first choice just from a purely personal perspective and wanting to learn from her. Um, I also have a toddler at home and 
there are days that I think, you know, well, at least I'm not the prime minister, right? It could be more challenging. <laughs> so she would probably be number one because I'm just so impressed how as a young female leader, she has been able to lead her country so successfully through not just coronavirus, but um, a number of different domestic terrorist issues and things that have happened in New Zealand, um, a big earthquake as well. So she would probably be my first choice. And then my second one, and maybe all three of us could have dinner together, um, would be a gentleman named Adam Searer. And it's partly because I'm, I'm such a pharmacy law nerd, but Adam Searer is an economist out of George Mason University, and he studies regulatory theory and its impacts on um, economics. And so he wrote a book called Permissionless Innovation, and that has really been the um, underlying theory around what our Board of Pharmacy has done in the state of Idaho, um, as well as many of our regulatory agencies at reducing regulation. And so I think it's this balance of how do you reduce regulation but still maintain the type of services that you want to have um, for your communities? And so I think our pharmacy board has done a really good job using the concept of permissionless innovation to guide guide their regulatory work. Um, so I just think, and having both of them there together, they would be such interesting conversations because yeah. a little bit different political philosophies, um, but really a, a cool lunch. So those would be my people. Awesome. Laura? Um, mine's kind of basic. Um, I would go to dinner with Taylor Swift. She's like my favorite. She's also a singer. boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is. Um, no, yeah, she's a very powerful and successful woman. And I, I just love her music and I would just, it would be really fun just to sit down with her and like talk to her and just get to know her and stuff. So that's who I would choose. That's awesome. That that's th those are some really fun uh some really fun <laughs> people we take. If I if I ever talk to any of them, I'm gonna definitely make sure I reach back to you guys so we can set up. This, oh, this that'd dinner. be awesome! <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so Dr. Adams, what's the best way for anyone to that wants to get um, in touch with you or connect with you? What's the best way for them to do that? Well, I know it's probably a little cheesy, but I'm pretty easy to reach on Twitter. Um. My Twitter handle is JLA Adams. So Twitter is a pretty good, pretty good way. I'm also in LinkedIn. Um, my main name is Athe, so I'm there as Jennifer Athe Adams. Awesome. I love Twitter, so I don't think that's cheesy at all. It's my favorite social media platform. So I'm definitely going to connect with you there as well. All right, Laura, what's the best way for people to connect with you if they wanted to? Um, Instagram, I guess. Um, I don't have a large following, but if anyone were to have questions, um, it's my Instagram is Laura triple A W 93. Awesome. Laura, we need to get you a Twitter handle also so we can just all hang I out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you all so much uh, for your time. Really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I thought that was an absolutely lovely episode. I really enjoyed it. Hope you did too. I'm going to include their contact information in the show notes. 
Uh, please make sure to connect on any of your favorite social media platforms. You can just search RX Radio um, or search my name, Richard Waith. I'd be happy to connect and hear your thoughts about the episode. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. And as always, I greatly appreciate you tuning in and listening to all the episodes. Make sure to have a great rest of your day. Pharmacy.